we pleased tonight that we have won the final of the Dow Small Business Technology Competition for the UK. Try that again. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Excellent. This is a this is a live show, so uh, we're three dimensional. So please, you know, interact as much as you uh, as much as you like. Um, I hope you all found the place okay. No, no none of you found the place okay. <laughs> That's encouraging. I think you'll agree that everyone's made quite an effort today. I, the uh, all the hops and my own work. I spent all afternoon putting these up. No, I didn't at all. Uh, not, not a bit of it. I put those vegetables there, and uh, Heather and Rachel and Rachel and Sandra did all this wonderful stuff here. So it's fantastic. It's nice to see you all. What I should say is a uh, big welcome to Terry. And I know Terry was feeling a little bit nervous earlier on. Uh, so, uh, I mean, how, what can we do to put you at your ease, do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, we need a bit of Welsh hoyle, a bit of sing song from the valleys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,. I've been said to be the, the, the second sexiest most man in Wales, but I'm going to sing a song now about the most sexiest. So ladies, please keep your underwear on. <laughs> the old plot looks the same as I walk in through the gate. And there to greet me were my runners and my carrots. Down the path I look, and that is I'll be. Coffee open and coffee handy. It's great to be on the old allotment plot again. Yes, you all come to see me in the shade of my old apple trees as I plant my veg in the green, green grass of home. <laughs> Fantastic. So do you feel a little bit more relaxed now? Well, I'm at home now. I'm back in amongst all these nice people here. So what more do you want? Good, good. And yes. some of you might be slightly uh, puzzled by uh, the, the, the fact that we've got an A and an M on our, on our T-shirts. Now, I know there will certainly be a couple of people in the audience which uh, will be thinking that A stands for something else, given that it's pinned on my, uh, my chest, especially Farmer Phil. But it, it's Apprentice. So that's what that stands for. And M uh, stands for, what do you think? Master. <laughs> That's absolutely so we have right. a perspective right there. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we started off where we've uh, continued to go. That's correct. Um, about a year ago, I went down to, uh, to Terry's allotment. We, did, um, we wanted to do a, a podcast with Saga magazine. Terry was already writing for Saga, and uh, I wasn't entirely sure what to expect. I listened to Terry a few times on the radio, as uh, half of you have, I'm sure. And I was expecting a kind of little 
grizzled up Welsh guy poking around the, the allotment. Charming, isn't it? Charming. That's my brother. <laughs> and, uh, and, and anyway, I, I ended up meeting this, uh, this uh, very eloquent, uh, tall, handsome, uh, great, great, great top man. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I, I, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time, it's always nice to go bearing gifts. So uh, I wasn't entirely sure what to take. But being at Wiggly Wigglers, one of the obvious choices is to take a, a wormery. So I took down a can of worms, complete with worms and bedding material and all this kind of stuff. Gave it to Terry, thinking, oh, you know, I hope he's, he's going to welcome me with open arms and really enjoy his wormery. How has the wormery gone down there? Well, I mean, the first thing, and when you brought it along, I thought it was a still. <laughs> so my, my eyes lit up when this, this thing arrived. I thought, oh, instead of the coffee, you know, we've got a still in the coffee. We're looking good. Anyway, I'm always willing to try these new inventions on a wormery. I thought, what's a wormery? You know, I've got enough of them in the ground. I don't want them in a pot to cook as well. So anyway, I mean, Richie brought me down. He said, have a look at this now. He said, I'm going to be really surprised with this, so keep an open mind. I said, what do I have to do then? I'm not being completely naive. He said, well, first of all, he said, we normally put this, what's it called, this material you give me I've never used? Queer. No, well, like, yeah, what do you call me? <laughs> <laughs> so queer, queer. He said, I said, I'm not using that in there. I'll put some compost in the bottom. So I said, what shall I use? He said, go to the bottom, I had this lovely compost. He dug the fork in, put it in, and there was one worm in there, one Welsh worm. I said, well, he's going to be busy on his own in there. No, no, hang on, he said. We got a big bag of these worms to give you. So he opened this bag now, and in there was 1,000 worms, so he tells me. I never counted them. So I thought, oh, problem. One worm any, one Welsh worm, 1,000 English worms. What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we put them in, and they, they got very, very happy. They started munching away. The waste started coming from the kitchen. These were chomping away. There was only one problem then. After about two weeks, I couldn't contain myself anymore. I'd look what was happening inside. And I opened up the top, and what did we have? 1,001 of them singing, Come Ronda. <laughs> so they'd obviously got on quite well and they, they mixed and now we're on the third generation of Welsh worms so they're doing very well but I mean it's been a godsend I mean I, I've always been sceptical for many many years now I've been organic for well over, well, well over 30 years now so anything new which will add to my organic dimension was brilliant and that has given me plenty of wormweed plenty of feed for the plants I'm now on about the fourth or fifth bag of compost all the stuff is coming from the house, all the, the decent stuff off the plot, and these guys are doing a fantastic job. Doing a fantastic job. So I'm very, very happy with our wormery, yeah. and it's been the, one of the best things. It stands pride of place on the plot. So what would have happened between you and I if it hadn't been any good? Well, I mean, it would have been a bit hell to play, I think. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'd have gone back to my old diehard ways with manure in the corner yeah. and still buying compost. But that has been a godsend to me. Good. I, I'm... I'm Particularly pleased about that because uh, if, if you give something, uh, give something to somebody, then uh, if it works, then it's kind of all important that, uh, that, that they enjoy it. Certainly. That was brilliant. Now the other thing I was amazed about, which I wax lyrical about often when I go out and do talks and things like that, uh, Bakashi. And you were even more sceptical about Bakashi, weren't you? Well, when you came on, I thought you were a cold Bakashi. Bakashi. <laughs> I said, "What am I going to do with this?" He said, "Why do you keep this bin with the kitchen door?" I said, "We got a bin with the kitchen door. We put all our rubbish in it, which goes up to the ash every week." He said, "No, this is a, a special bin." He said. He said, you collect this kitchen waste in your little caddy, you spread this special bran around, I thought, God, it's a breakfast cereal, we're going to have to eat this every morning, you know. But he put it around, and again, that was a, that's kept at home, I never reaches my allotment, and that's been wonderful, the, the, the liquid off there has done a fantastic job, and I feed my hanging basket, feed all my pots, so that's been another really good godsend, mm. and every four to five weeks, 
not to pay as them goes into my green Daleks on the allotments to accelerate the compost in. So yes, I give you another nine out of ten with that one. Excellent. Well, that's yeah. that's encouraging. Yeah. Um, you know. What fascinates me about you most, I think, is that, um, you know, having met you and read, you read your book and whatnot, is how long you've been as passionate as you have about vegetables. Because, really, you know, for me, I probably started growing vegetables um, six years ago, something like that. And yet you've had an allotment or been part of allotment growing since you were a tiny boy. Yeah, all of 20 years. 50 years. Yeah, 50, <laughs> 50 years. Yeah. You're a tiny boy, not you? <laughs> Yeah, so well, what's always, kept, what's, why have you, why have you, what's maintained your enthusiasm? Well, I think it's just a life. I mean, I, I started, I was a four-year-old. I actually got vivid memories of this four-year-old. I mean, we lived about 100 yards from the allotment. My father was a fanatical allotment gardener. Mm. Disappeared every day, a bit like I do now. Went up with his pot of tea and his couple of sandwiches just after breakfast and reappeared when the sun went down. So when I got about four-year-old, I got a bit troublesome. My mother said, well... Take this boy with you and get him under my feet. So I remember as a four-year-old, the big steel gates clanking open, gripping my father's hand, and bear in mind now, this was just after the war. Just after the war. I was one of the rushes back from the trenches, by the way. So I was born four years after the end of the war. And I went in through this gate, and there was all, all these guys in those days, in the early 50s, they all seemed to be over seven foot tall. They were all tall. They were built like a beanpole. They all were, remember many of the days of Percy Thrower? You all remember that? They all gardened, didn't they? Coats, jackets, ties, everything. I walked into this allotment, dripping firmly to my father's hand, and all these people were sort of popping out from me in bean trenches looking at me. My father was about three quarters away from the allotments in those days, and had a big, big shed there with a patch of ground, corner, and stage there. And he sat me on this step when I was getting bored, so he said, Oh, son, he said, I have this little tool and I have this little packet of seeds, put it in that there. So I'm quite happy to play away, put my first packet of seeds in, and what do we all start with as kids? Radish. Because that goes in, I put my first little sow seeds, you can actually see them and feel them, cover these over. Well, two or three days later, when he took me back, I was sitting on this step, and I could see these leaves, getting very, getting very excited, these come up. And six weeks later, I'd actually pulled my very first radish, and I was four years old and six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and to actually taste that, and then that got me hooked. Fantastic. So at, the, at the age of 11, then, I'd learned all I could learn. When I mean, as a youngster, they all know we all know everything before we reach teenagers, don't we? When you were kids, you know, you know, you got your teen, your kid. When he passes ten, he's a wildly person of the world who knows everything. So at eleven, I decided. Now this was 1957. I was now have you worked on my agent. Who's <laughs> these mathematicians here? So I was, I was the age of eleven, and I, I said to my father, "I don't want to be with you anymore. I'm big enough to have my own plot now." Well, he said, "Put a letter in." I said, "I can't write." <laughs> so you were thought you should have sent me to school <laughs> so I put this letter into the committee and the, uh, <coughs> they went before all these guys and they all met in these secret rooms at the, at the back of the allotment there and they came out and they said yeah you can have a plot and they, I heard the rationale and they said well he's only 11 he's been here for two weeks and somebody else will have it anyway I proved them all wrong and they, they all took me under their wing and all this vast amount hundreds and hundreds of years of knowledge were poured into my mind from all these old timers then they took me on their wing and I became their little favourite boy in there. And I, I learned all I learned in those days. And it, I, I took that on in 57. And by the, 1962, I had 10 of these allotments. As everybody was popping off you there and there, Teddy's name was in. <laughs> and uh, I, I then had 10 of these allotments. And I built my very first empire. I was a little bunny in Richard Branson of the Ronda. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, for those who have allotments, I mean, the, the, the unwritten rule of allotments is you must not sell your produce. There's no way you can 
The produce of the rules are quite clearly stated. This can only be shared with fans and family and for your own use. So, well, this is a waste of time, and I'm, I'm, I'm a, a sort of 16-year-old now who needs a bit of caution in his pocket. So, in those days, all the tomatoes used to come in from Guernsey in these little wooden boxes with four corners. So, I had a little deal with the little local greengrocer at all these empty boxes I would take. And on a Friday night, I'd go up to this allotment, I'd collect all the vegetables already. Now, they say the box system is new. I had the box system in 1961-62. And I used to collect the beans, the cabbage, the potatoes, and everything else, put up this system, and delivered it around the houses close by the allotment. Now, I quite clearly was fed to me by the committee on the allotments, son, you are not allowed to sell any of this produce. So I didn't. I sold the box. The produce was free. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept on with these ten plots and way into about uh, the early 1970s, along came the kids. I had to stay at home one day a week then to do some work, so I, uh, I started winding down. But I'm still in the same allotments now, 50 years plus later, and still enjoying every minute of it. And people who come along to me quite often and say, God, it's hard work gardening. I say to anybody who mentions the word hard work and gardening in the same breath, give it up, because if it's hard work, you're not enjoying it. You go along for the social spirit that's there to meet the people, the gardening's incidental. If you enjoy that, good luck to you. But the social bit is, is as good as anything else you get anywhere. You've, uh, speaking of uh, social things, you've had some uh, quite uh, impressive visitors as well, haven't you? Well, yeah, it's fascinating. And since we started the Jeremy Jane show, and believe it or not, it's five and a half years ago now, and I have to pinch myself quite often that uh, I've been the, the Archie Andrews of Radio 2 now for five and a half years, which is quite surprising. Doing gardening on the radio seemed rather alien to me. Oh, you can, but I'm just one letting you into one secret for those who listen to the show. My brief is every, day, every time I go on, I have to do two functions which make a noise. So all these are live, I have to make a noise. But yeah, as you say, you know, people come along to the gate of all ilks and they say, uh, where is Jeremy Vine's allotment? And I say, well, this is it. Where is he? I said, well, I'm it. So, anyway, people are more and more come along to it than television crews have been in the But a, a month ago, we had a letter from Palace and from HRH herself and she said my son Charles wants to come down and visit your plot we heard you were big into recycling because everything on the allotment has been recycled he said uh, everyone, I, I gather most of you grow organically we all grow organically he said well I'll please my son no end could he mind if he comes down I said no he can come down no problem at all so we were lined up as a committee now the helicopter comes in over the hills stops in the field about 100 yards away door opens out steps the prince Grey suit, macklet shirt, tie, and a Davy Crockett hat. <laughs> so you imagine this in the middle of the valleys now, in Prince of Wales, Davy Crockett hat. So he walks towards us, and we all must whistle into ourselves, but nobody would be offended by asking him anything. So we showed him round, showed him how we recycled, how we did all the organic produce, and he was overwhelmed. So being a, a sort of typical valleys community, we thought we'd better lay a bit of a spread on for him. So we did some spam sandwiches and some... <laughs> A couple of tomatoes, we scrounged from Albie's greenhouse, a cucumber from Reese's greenhouse, so this little spread was laid on. And we thought, well, we've got a little drink, and we? so we'll lay on a couple of, a couple of pints of real ale, he'd surely enjoy that. So anyhow, we got enjoying this, and then I thought, well, I know, I'd had a couple of beers, and all my Thomas on carriage went up a bit. So I said to him, uh, Prince Charles, I said, you came looking immaculate today, and I'm very pleased you welcomed us. I said, but do you realise you're wearing a Davy Crockett hat? I know, Terry, he said, uh, before I came down this morning, I had to go to the palace, he said. So I walked in, and my mother said, Charles, she said, uh, when are you going today then, Charles? Looking around the dresser rather smartly. And he said, I'm going to visit Teddy's allotments in the Ronda. 
You're going where, Charles? I'm going to visit Terry's Lockman's in, the, in Rhonda. Where the fox at? <laughs> <laughs> Explain it to them, guys. They don't understand. <laughs> I've heard that joke four times, man. It's just as funny as it was. Not many jokes like that. <laughs> when you, um, you grow, you grow vegetables every single year. You try different things. You grow different vegetables every year, and some things you're more successful with than others. And it's experience for everybody, I guess. Um, but how self-sufficient are you with, with vegetables? I mean, how, how long throughout the year can you uh, support yourself with what you grow on the allotment? Well, probably, we probably live off, and it's a 10 perch allotment, 325 square yards, or the size of a, a tennis court, for those who don't can work it out. We live for about 10 months of the year off that allotment. And uh, that's not obviously all fresh. One of the, one, a lot of people forget that allotments is like a dog. It's not just for the summer, it's, it's for all the year round. And one of the important bits of our allotments is to grow the winter veg, in, intermingled with all your summer cropping. Because the parsnips, the swede, the leek, the Brussels sprouts, the savoys are all absolutely vital during those winter months to keep supplementing. But if again, one decent 30-foot row of runner beans will stock your freezer for a 12-month, plus eating them, so you can do that. On that plot alone, I will grow enough potatoes to get me through 10 months of the year. We usually have to buy potatoes in... May, June, before I start digging the earlies. So supplementing by what's on the plot, plus what's in the, the store shed, in ways of potatoes, onions, plus all the chutneys and jams and everything else we make, we are eating every single day for at least 10 months of the year something that's been produced on our allotment plot. Fantastic. Um, what is the most... Because we've, um, we do a, a podcast every month, and Wiggly Wigglers has been doing a podcast for the last... Oh, how long have... Two and a half years or something like that? Or Michael, yeah, Michael would know exactly. Three years. Three years, okay, three years. Which is a, an incredible feat in itself, to find new material every, uh, every month. Uh, does anyone listen to the podcast, just out of interest? I know, I know Simon does in there. There's a, there's a nice face to see. So there's a, a couple more people do. Um, does everybody know what a podcast is? Uh, most people are nodding. They just want to uh, humour me, I can see that. That's okay. <laughs> we, do, we do a podcast, but we have listeners all over the world. Wiggly Wigglers and uh, Tales from Terry's Allotment. And, uh, and a couple of people have sent Terry some seeds, some, uh, some wonderful seeds to grow squashes with. Uh, and Megan sent you some from California, didn't yes, she? Yes, yes. And how yeah. they got on on the, on the Welsh hillsides? Very good, actually. I mean, it's amazing. These things have come from all the way from sunny California where they've been basking in the sun and we've had, what, the worst summer on record? Without a doubt, I think we've had three or four spots of rain on the hillside this year at least. And uh, she sent me these, she sent me some crim, which were supposed to be black tomatoes. And she said they were miniature, and they grew about that big, and they were, they were fantastic. <laughs> and she sent me some spaghetti squash, and they have really blossomed up on that hillside. And I've cut a good eight or nine of these things. And then she also sent me some of this sweet, pie, sweet American pie pumpkin. And I've got three of them. Two of them are for... Jeremy Vine's daughters and one for my granddaughter. So I managed to. I had an objective when I started growing these. I wanted three pumpkins for three ladies this year, and I managed my three pumpkins. So they got three authentic American Californian pumpkins as well. So it's, it's worth trying these things. It is. I mean, it's definitely worth trying them. I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't tasted any yet. So no, uh, I am neither. So I mean, they right. could be rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it will be. Um, my uh, nemesis vegetable is uh, uh, no, Brussels sprouts. That's Nemesia. Brussels sprouts. That's right? a big word, nemesis. 
No, it's only, it's only, it's only got a couple of syllables. <laughs> very flowery, very fluffy, the old Brussels sprouts, you know? They, yeah. don't, they don't get firm up. And, and you're, uh, you use a variety called Icarus, don't you? Yes. But have you, with all the experience that you've got, got a vegetable that you can't quite master? Yes, cauliflowers. Right. Believe it or not, I cannot grow a decent cauliflower. I can get them to start to form the curd in the middle, but inevitably they start to blow or they, they don't make a decent size. I gotta, we've got to have three cauliflowers to make a decent meal. I cannot grow a really large cauliflower. I'll have to start buying Alan Titchmarsh's book. As well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So what, what's the ingredient for growing a really large cauliflower? Well, I mean, it's got to be very, very rich ground, and it's got to be extremely firm. And I tried all that. I mean, I'm going back to my childhood days, when I was about six or seven, my father had this great theory about growing cauliflowers, and he could grow them marvellously, and as well as Brussels sprouts. And he always reckoned, you, to, to grow a decent one of either of those, you need to have to make the hole with a crowbar. The ground's got to be so firm, you can barely make them in, so they really rock solid in the ground to make the non-blown sprouts and cauliflower. And what he used to do on the afternoon, he used to take me up there, he used to mark out where he was planting his Brussels sprouts or cauliflower, he'd cut a bit of wood into a bat, stick three little sticks in the ground, and he'd bowl this ball to me. And he'd bowl it such that I could hit it, and he'd take ages to fetch it, again, he'd run him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, so this ground was nice and firm. So they, you know... If you, if you ever had child abuse, that was it, wasn't it? I, I didn't realise I was brought up being abused. Yeah. I thought, this cricket is easier. Can it just ball a long way? Off he'd amble, I'd be back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'd make 60 off each over. <laughs> but that's, that's the secret of this good, solid Brussels sprouts is, uh, is firm ground and the same with the sacred cauliflowers. Right, right. Yeah. But you, you've, you've recently admitted you've had problems with your parsnips as well. I mean, roots. You know, I, I adore parsnips and swede and carrots and things like that. But don't you, aren't you supposed to wait until you have frosts and things like that but to pick them? to get Well, the that's, that's the theory. I mean, the winter veg, they almost reckon, is sweeter after the frost. You need, you need the frost to turn the starches to sugar to make them sweet. But you've got to be a very patient man or woman these days to wait for a frost, don't you? They never seem to arrive, do they? So I, my patience is now exhausted, so I... I discarded that theory and I, I've been using Brussels sprouts for two or three weeks and parsnips for at least a week or so now so I cannot contain myself anymore I'm waiting for that Jack Frost to fall in the valleys <laughs> Is anybody uh, just out of interest anybody in the audience not like gardening? Got <laughs> 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 yeah, a couple at the back there <laughs> The pantomimes at Christmas alright <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear I um, you uh, you saw my uh, my my effort at my, at my uh, vegetable growing earlier on when you came around to us. First time you came around to us, wasn't it? Yeah, with the vegetables. I can't. There's no answer. There's no answer. What can I say to that? Uh, but you know, as a, as a relative novice, I mean, what do you, what do you think? I mean, what? what uh, well, you've got 48 years more experience under your belt. You make it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you, you're different. You know, you you and all me. I mean, you sitting here with me. I mean, you you one of these guys that's sort of wildlife and out in the country and enjoying this, uh, the freedom of all this wildlife. I mean, how do you get into all that then? I mean, uh, and what, what was also baffled me about you is, I mean, you, you go around preaching about the salvation of wildlife and you own a shotgun. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. Who do you shoot? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, have you got any holes in the back of your jumper there? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a funny one, actually. You're not the first person to ask that question. <laughs> and in fact, a friend of mine from Devon not so long ago came up and he said, people wouldn't understand, Richard, why it is that you love wildlife so much and yet you go out and shoot everything. And I, I, I had the same problem explaining that to him. And, well, can you uh, try explaining it? <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a great story, actually, which is... Uh, um, it's quite nice that uh, the guy uh, who I was with at the time, parents are in the front row here, uh, Sue and Gil, who uh, I've known since I was uh, uh, 10 years old or possibly slightly younger, and Daniel, who we were um, each other's best men at our weddings. And I remember as kids, we used to spend all the time, every weekend we'd go, wouldn't we disappear, and we'd go out and we'd go fishing and shooting and things like that. Probably, I don't know, we're probably about 12 or 14 years of age. And we were walking through the woods. This is up uh, on the other side of Herefordshire, uh, a place called the Cockshoot. We kind of had permission to be there, sort of. Um, well, at least, you know, that was the... <laughs> I remember that premise anyway. And we were walking around, we were walking around this... And nothing, it was a big, big pheasant shooting estate, you know. And my godfather used to live in a house, no electricity, no running water, nothing like that. So we used to stay with him because it was such an adventure. You know, you just have the wood burner and candles and guns. I mean, what could a boy want any more? <laughs> so we said, I mean, it's amazing when I think back how, how flexible he was, you know, how laid back he was. Because, you know, we'd go there and in those days, of course, guns weren't even kept in cabinets, really. You know, you'd go and he had a tutu rifle. So go and get the rifle and off Dan and I used to go. And we used to shoot... Anything that moved, really. <laughs> that, was the, that was the irony of the thing. But I remember there was a, there was a, a turning point for me. And, uh, yeah, at 14 years of age, we were shooting rabbits. And we were, there was a, we were quiet, probably a, a unique moment where we were quiet together, not chitter-chattering, and I had the gun in my hand. And we were walking around this bend, probably looking for a rabbit. And there was loads of movement, and it shouldn't have been moving, you know, it was wrong, there was no wind, there was nothing like that. There was loads and loads of movement, loads of vibration, loads of noise, you know, a real scrunching noise. And neither of us knew what it was, and we sort of looked at each other, and we came round this big bramble bush, and there were two stags there, two fallow stags, and they were rutting. And I'm not kidding you, they were from me to you, Anthony, just, just there. And we stood there as boys, we stood there and watched these two things in awe, you know, and it was the most amazing thing, just that. And that was a, that was a turning point, really. And I mean, I didn't even, didn't even occur to me to, uh, to have a shot at one or anything like that. It was just one of those most amazing things. And I think the detail in natural history, the, the, the ability to be able to observe wildlife, um, the nitty-gritty, I, I, one of my favourite things, right... I'm going to destroy Rosie's bouquet now. Uh, I'm not going to destroy it. I'm just going to uh, destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take this little chap out here. Uh, does everybody know what this is? For me, for me, I've said this many times, but it's um, one of my favourite things to, to talk about. This is one of the, the, the most fantastic plants there are. Architecturally, it's quite significant. I mean, you can use it in, in, uh, in wonderful flower bouquets and whatnot. Um, architecture looks brilliant in a garden. That's, that uh, cylindrical seed head is inundated with the most beautiful mauve blossom that winds in concentric rings throughout the whole of the summertime. And you'll have butterflies and bees and all sorts feasting on the nectar and pollen. You'll even have... Uh, little crab spiders that will wander up here and they'll perch on the top and they'll wait and they'll wait for days for something to land. Quite literally days. And a poor old meadow brown will get a bit too close one day. Bang. It's 
God, it's been eaten, so that crab spider will have its feast. And those mauve flowers have gone over. There are hundreds of seeds in that head. And if you have swathes of teasels, or even a small patch of teasel in your garden, there's every chance that you'll have flocks of those little yellow-flecked, chattering goldfinches, you know. It's free bird food. Teasels sell seeds like mine. Lots of folks don't like things like teasels um, and, uh, and, and um, uh, yellow primrose and things like that because they, they self-seed, you know. But I like that because any bare patch of soil is, is soon full, so you don't have to worry about filling it. When I was a kid, we used to do um, B&B. And uh, I used to go, and, in order to make a few quid, I used to go and collect teasels. And what I'd do is I'd cut the teasel off there like that and cut the bottom off it, snip off these little uh, leaves around the bottom and stick them to a piece of bark. And depending on how affluent it was at the time, I'd have put a couple of peppercorns or mapping pins either side. And it, there was a hedgehog. We used to sell them for 10 or 15 pence a shot, which is good money, you know. Well, 30 years ago, yeah. 30 years ago, it was 30 years ago, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see you throwing many 10 pence away now. (laughs) So, but, of course, after the seed's gone off, the birds are feasting the seed, what you can do with these teasels is they're hollow stem. Now, has anybody got a bug box or um, any sort of bee box in the garden at all? A couple, only a couple of bits. Simon, I know Simon's got some because uh, Simon and I have had most amazing electronic conversations over bee cryogenics and all sorts of things. Um, but bees, bee boxes, whether you buy them yourself, you can buy some fantastic-looking um, bee boxes, brilliantly aesthetic for the garden, or you can make something that's relatively simple. Cut your stems, stuff them into a plastic bottle or a box or something like that, pop them on a wall facing south or southeast, and you will attract solitary bees. Now, we, uh, we're, we're, we're struggling a bit. Do you get many bees on your allotment these days? It varies. I mean, it was strange this year. The beginning of the year, around about April, there seemed to be a big predominance, particularly of bumbles, which mm. I, I'd never seen so many, which was fortunate for the broad That's beans. Encouraging. But yeah. then the summer came in. As we all know, it went downhill rapidly. The rain became more. They don't wear these um, sort of packamax too well, these bumbles. They, they all disappeared for most of the summer. No, but it did then suffer, yeah. One mm. game, as we all know, I mean, the... The beekeepers are suffering badly from disease. Hive after hives have been wiped out, That's right. which is a, a real problem. Because if, if we lose the bee population, then we lose the ability to grow uh, fruit and vegetables. Mm. I mean, we, as Missy would say on Dad's army, we doomed, we doomed. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are doomed. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, the interesting Hannah, I was talking to, to Hannah today, who looks after bees. Uh, she's an apiarist, would you believe? And uh, she looks after the hive in the, in the Wiggly Garden. Um, and she was saying that she's having to artificially um, subsidise her, her bees' feed because it's been such a wet winter that they've not been able to go out and feed very much. Mm. So, of course, the consequence of that is plants aren't being yep. pollinated yep. sufficiently. Yep. Where there's a problem, um, loss of habitat and things like that. But, of course, gardeners, you know, we can provide this habitat that, that species of bee need, uh, species of bees need even. There are something like 247 different species of solitary bee, would you believe, in this country. Now, some of you, when you're digging your vegetable patch, you'll see those little tawny mining bees coming out of the ground. You'll think, oh, why's a bee coming out of the ground? Because that little chap's burrowing down there to lay its eggs. You'll have masonry bees boring into the the lime uh, render in your walls and whatnot. Um, And you'll have little mason mason bees, which will be nesting in little hollow tubes like that. Now, whilst those bees are relatively inefficient 
at uh, harvesting pollen because they don't have those big pollen baskets like bumblebees and honeybees do. They're very hairy, so they transfer pollen beautifully between one flower to the next. So they're fantastic pollinators. So by providing a little home for the solitary bees in your garden, you're probably doing your garden and your neighbour's gardens a massive service. And it's, in many respects, far more ecologically significant to do that than, than putting up a bird box. And you get just as much fun doing it as well. Have you got a bird box in the allotment? No. Bee boss or anything like that. No. Oh, we'll, have to, no. we'll have to sort that. Because you've got some habitat in the bottom of the allotment, haven't you? You've got down there, there's a, there's a, a pond, isn't there, down the bottom? There's a pond at the bottom, yes. yes. And some brambles. And plenty of brambles. That's my little wildlife aid in there. Yeah. I mean, I put that in. I mean, when you go organic, you need as many friends as you can get on the allotment. And one of the strangest things about our hillside allotments that has never been a hedgehog there. So anybody got a stray hedgehog or someone who's sickly, I'm quite happy to give him a home. <laughs> We've never had a hedgehog on the allotment in my whole 50 plus years on there. But, but also one time, the mountains behind the allotment were full of pools, so we had a great population of frogs. But as everything else, everybody wants to drain everything these days. I know there's going to be a phobia about getting rid of surface water and draining it. So all the habitat on the mountain at the rear of the allotments lost all its ponds. So about five years ago, I decided... I've got to redress this, I'm going to give up a little bit of my plot and create a pond at the bottom there. It's a bit lethal because it grows just among the blackberries and as my wife can testify, we walk along there sometimes and there's a scream and somebody's standing in the middle of it, but uh, <laughs> that's the downfall of it. As long as she misses the frogs, I don't mind that bear them. <laughs> so I put this in and uh, for one year nothing appeared, but I got a pond in the back garden which is well truly laden with frogs, so I transferred some of this frog spawn this year, uh, about four years ago, and these great little frogs all emerge around the beginning of July. Another little tip, which, I, which is great if you've got frogs. I grow sweet peas. Anybody love sweet peas? Fantastic. But what do they do? They're a big magnet for aphids. The aphids really love the tips of sweet peas. Now, being organic, I can't go around and spray anything else. So on a warm summer's evening, what I love to do, and this is around July when they're in the peak, I take a little paper bag, I go to the tips where the aphids are, and I tap them into the bag. And I go down to the bottom eh, and I just tip these all around the edge of the pool. And by God, those little frogs love those. So you make big, healthy frogs. So it's a great way of feeding the frogs and doing that. But the second year, then, I took the frog spawn back and these all hatched out. So third year, I was going to take a lot of frog spawn up. But when I got up there, there was a big pile of this frog spawn. So obviously now these little juniors I'd brought on were now fully grown adults. And I got to that age where they should do what all youngsters shouldn't be doing, but they do. And then if I had this, this frog spawn come in, so I've now got this little thriving population. And at the bottom of the plot, I've got this part where I grow blackberries. Because there are a lot of trees there, and I can't grow much else. So I leave a wildlife area and all these blackberries. And that gives these little, these little youngsters a chance to get out before all the birds <laughs> nibble them away. And, so, and uh, they're quite lucky, aren't they? Because there are no mowers nearby. No, no mowers nearby, so they're all quite happy there. They can all sit under there. They don't have to negotiate yeah. a lawn or anything, yeah. do they? So. The only trouble is, they're a bit of a nuisance when we're having coffee because they all want to come up and have a cup, but we can't spare them. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so you, you, he's trying to get the ecological balance back in, isn't it? And, uh, it is. But I'm you know, if, I can, if I can get a little population of hedgehogs now in amongst those brambles at the bottom as well, I'd have uh, then achieved a bit more being sort of organic and getting these slugs under control. Yeah. No, you mean, no, that's a, no, 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 that's a sore right point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you, I mean, I, I, I couldn't go out and kill anything living with one exception. That's the slug. I cannot, I detest the slug. But I, and I, I try not, as best I can to go fully organic, but I have not achieved that. Once my plants are growing, I'm perfectly happy for the slugs to have a bit of the outer leaves and do whatever they like to do. 
But when I put small tender lettuce out or I put cabbage out, those slugs come from everywhere and they devour them and I can't get into that. So I always put them over clutches and I have to put them, <laughs> these dreaded mini blue pellets down and give them a, a start in life. But yeah, you know, another thing I do quite regularly, I mean, I, at night, just after the, it's just going dark, that's when they come out in force and every slug in creation is out there. So I put on my balaclava, I black my face, put my black outfit on, <laughs> I shine up my kitchen knife, I go up with my big flashlight, and I shine it between the eyes, when they blink, I stab them. So that's my... <laughs> I can't believe someone actually went, ooh. <laughs> As if he's really telling the truth. <laughs> he is really telling the truth. <laughs> my neighbours think I'm an almost any maniac in my backyard at 11 o'clock at night. There's this flash beam going everywhere and this glint of silver going along. <laughs> Number of times you've had to come and bail me out of the police station. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's only a slug. Uh, but what's interesting is that, um, is, is in theory, of course, you can still be an organic gardener and uh, use slug pellets, can't you? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I've not got many blues. I mean, they are not organic. But I mean, you are trying to, I mean, you try to convert me with that. You try to convert me with the Bokashi. But now, this year, you come up with the next level of my education, which was nematodes. Are you familiar <laughs> with nematodes? I mean, I couldn't afford to buy them. If he didn't give them to me, I wouldn't try them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've, I've, this season, which must be the wettest on record, I've gone round and watered these nematodes everywhere. And these slugs are ten times bigger than they were before, so I'm sure they've eaten the nematodes. But I am, I'm convinced, you were trying to convince me at this time next year, these slugs will be under control. So the jury is still out on whether nematodes are the answer to my slug problem. Yeah, you, you mark my words. They're, they're, yeah, and they're pretty tough, these Ronda slugs, man. You know, they, they work many years underground in those pits, and when they come up, by, <laughs> <laughs> they got some muscles on them. They can, they can dandle more things. Yeah. Who's this nematode? Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we shall see. We shall see. A bit of a David and Goliath thing, I think. Yeah, we do, yeah. yeah are you going uh, to stop using slow pellets next year? If you, if you convince me the nematodes have wiped out the slug population, but if I put out my little tender lettuce, my little cabbage plants, and they come along, I'm afraid I can't turn a blind eye to a slug eating everything I got. <laughs> I, I don't mind him sharing, but when he gets over greedy, then he's got to go. I imagine that's probably the most common question you get asked, isn't it? How, how you can control slugs. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's the, the most common lot. I mean, I don't know about any of you, but I mean, they, they, they go out and they sell in all these various barriers and bran and everything else. Brilliant. When you put this stuff down and it's bone dry, yeah, the slug will not cross it. But in the Welsh Valleys, when that rain comes down, that slug just skates over the top. <laughs> you know, it doesn't stop him. And when I came across this year, you were there when I had those two wonderful pots sent me. Uh, well, I yeah, seem to be the, yeah, well. the focus now of all inventors <laughs> gardening. So, so this guy had made these two pots, which are plastic, and they had like two inverted mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And underneath, he sprayed <laughs> copper. So I tried those out, and they, there's no way the slug can get in there, he said. Well, they have. <laughs> I put those two in, I put the marigolds in, and that's the biggest slug attraction that is. They will go for marigolds. They seem to smell those from 300 paces, don't they? they you, I you put them in, and I, I don't know what they did. They must have had the grappling hooks. They threw up. They, uh, they abseiled up <coughs> over the top of the, of the copper, and they went in on a feed, and they abseiled back down again. <laughs> two stone heavier. So that hasn't worked yet, anyway. No, that's no good. No. That's, you answered a, 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 a question I had in the back of my mind, because I've, I've been trying to get hold of that guy to uh, see if they're... Uh, you know, if we could get hold of them as products for Wiggly Wigglers, but uh, obviously uh, he's gone bankrupt. 
Wow. <laughs> when you sell something to slug prevent it, it don't work, I mean, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, that's right. I Meaning they're quite handy to keep the rain off your head when they, that's about the only thing yeah. you can find any value of. <laughs> I'm actually keeping the slug away. I know I don't they think did look really good. Though, didn't they I? did. I was, yeah. I was quite confident when I saw them initially that they were going to work. Yeah. Perhaps I ought to put something in the slugs I don't like in them and then they might work. And unfortunately, I mean, the problem with our climate is that we've got this wonderful warm maritime climate and, you know, it's a, it's a perfect place for slugs to be. And we get these wet seasons, these wet, warm summers. And it's, a, it's a nightmare for gardeners in many respects. Just out of interest, does anybody in the audience not use slug pellets? <laughs> that's a good, that's a good so what's the secret? Two people. Put toads in the garden. All oh, right. Yeah, well they are, but I mean, they, they, can they win? That's the thing. Uh, I got, I got slug, um, lots of frogs and toads, but the, the slug population seems to outwit them. I don't know. I think they eat, they, they eat enough, but they don't, can't eat enough to keep them under control. Yeah. It's probably the quality of your food. Mine's probably not as good as yours. <laughs> 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 no, could there's, that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing, because of course the reason they like eating... Uh, what we like planting is because we like eating what we like planting so much so uh, kind of you're up against it really yeah. aren't you? I mean Heather you ought to invest a bit of money and come up with a weed eating slug and you'd be the first multi-billionaire in the gardening business because <laughs> the day someone can find a slug that only feeds on weeds and not on plants then you'd be great I mean talking about weeds I mean weeds are one of these things I mean what is a weed it's a great definition of a weed and you be, when you come known for gardening you, you get all these sort of weird questions and somebody came up to me and they said I've just bought this large pergola at the bottom of my garden what do you reckon would be nice and scented that can grow over this pergola I said try a nice honeysuckle so she went off and about a month in she came back I said how was that honeysuckle doing he died oh thank god she said what can I grow that's more robust than a honeysuckle in? I said go on and get a good decent rambling rose with a good scent and that will grow over the top of it so well, she went and put his in for about three weeks later. I said well How's this rambling rose going? It's dying. I thought, oh, God. I said, she said, well, don't worry. She said, it's perfect now, this pergola. She said, I've got this very bright green plant around with these massive great white flowers, and it's growing absolutely wonderful on there. She said, I said, well, carry on. The bind weed will grow anywhere. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, what's, the, I mean, what's the main problem you suffer with on the allotment, though? You. <laughs> 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 you come, with your let me, two, let me, let me you come, you come there once a month with your two carrier bags and take off my produce. <laughs> <laughs> you do more damage than the slugs. <laughs> <laughs> so, other than me, what's the main, <laughs> main problem? With you? Main problem is probably club root. Right. Are most of any lockman keepers here? Just the one? Can't blame you. All got big gardens in this part of the world, don't you? Uh, but I mean, the main problem on any allotments, and particularly our allotments, which was founded in 1917, over the years it's been overused for more things. And back in the, the good old bad old days, and people used to keep planting the same things in the same place. And a lot of interchange of plants went on. And when disease got in, it was spread rapidly. Mm. So club root, once club root is in, it's one devil of a job to get rid of. Mm. Um, but, you know, we now found largely the solution. I mean, one of the problems with club root is... It affects the immediate root and starves the plant of nutrients and water. So what you have to do now is grow your cabbage plants in a decent five or six inch pot. And then when you put them out, create a fairly large size hole, about nine to ten inches diameter. Line it with lime, fill it with compost, put the plant in the middle, firm it in. And then obviously the, the root of the plant makes a lot of growth before it comes anywhere near the earth. 
So therefore, it gets all the nutrients and all the water it wants, and it will become big enough before it ever gets exposed to club root. Mm. But if you try putting a plant straight in the soil, then club root is the biggest enemy. Mm. Mm. Beyond that, I don't think there's much else that can really bothers me. It can conquer most other things by rotation, but club root seems to be there, and once it's there, it's a lifetime problem. Mm. And what's your favourite type of manure? Favourite type of manure? Horse. Mm. No, that's a question I've never asked you, isn't it? Horse manure is your yeah. favourite type of manure. Well, I, I use... I, I find with horse, particularly if it's on straw, never ever use horse manure which has been kept on wood shavings. Particularly anything under four or five years old, of horse manure has been kept on horse shavings. When that's dug in, what wood does is takes nitrogen out of the soil to actually cause it to rot. So you land up then having the situation where all that nitrogen has been used to rot the wood shavings and not actually feed your plants. You've got a horse manure which is fed, fed on, where they've kept on straw. It's nice and light and airy. It aerates the soil. It's great for the worms, and it really works. And the other thing I'm a great advocate of, which I've taken up in recent times, is the green manure in the winter. I mean, the situation in the winter has always been, I always rough dug and let the weather break it down. But winters, when I was at I always seemed to be drier, but much colder. Cold easterly winds, good frost, break it down. But what do we get now? Summer all year round, don't we? We get rain after rain after rain. So all you're doing when you turn it over is allowing the nutrients to leach out of that soil. It flattens it down. So I use lots of green manure. I use vetches and I use rye grass. And everywhere my ground is empty where there's no winter crops. I spread this out in, in September. So I got a nice little savanna growing in by the time the weather turns a bit chillier. And what happens in the following February? you can do away with a horse. You can take this manure straight from the ground, straight in the soil, horse redundant. So you can land up, and that holds the nutrients, the vetches hold the nitrogen, and you don't have, you, you haven't got the same effort of only go out and collect all the manure. And all your nutrients are not being washed into the Nina's River. What about chicken manure? Why do you, why do you think that's... Ah, no, that's chicken and poultry manure, when it includes pigeon. I, remember, I have a contract every Tuesday morning for two bags of pigeon manure. No. The guy rings me and said, I've emptied the loft here, come and collect them. No. Now, it's that, one of the best places for using that is it's, got, it's very high in nitrogen, and if it's dry, <coughs> it's a fantastic compost accelerator. Mm. Particularly, I mean, you know these green Daleks they sell, compost bins? Well, you know, they're impossible in them to actually turn that compost in there. So what I do is, as my green material go in, I put a bag of chicken or pigeon manure on top and then carry on building it up. And that creates a fantastic heat and breaks the whole of that down by the following spring into a lovely crumbly brown compost to be used. Mm. But yeah, they are, but they are, and again, a fantastic place for any poultry or pigeon manure again is your onion bed. Because if you can put that on in the autumn and leave it winter over, you've got a fantastically rich nitrogen-based bed for your onions. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great manure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I should do this, but I, but I will anyway. Um, just before we uh, we wrap up the first session, I, I've got a joke talking about uh, chickens. I, I've got a I've got a joke, and I don't tell jokes, so whether this will be funny. <laughs> <laughs> Hello listener, it's Michael here. I usually get to stay behind the microphone, but at this point I have to come forward and apologise for an unfortunate technical error that prevents me from bringing you the rest of Richard's joke. I hope you've enjoyed this rather special weekly podcast live from Preston-on-Wye Village Hall featuring Terry Walton and Ricardo Richard Fishbourne. Oh, I see that Mary's now cleared the technical problem, so we can return to Richard's joke. The moral of the story is...
you don't need a BMW if you're hung like a horse. <laughs> but you see, well, the funniest thing is I'm so crap at telling jokes that actually, you missed the punchline. Actually, the punchline is you don't need a BMW to pull the chicks if you're hung like a horse. <laughs> I think you better stick to the day job. <laughs> so. Uh, what I would say, folks, is, um, is that's going to be the end of the first... You guys are going to go off and have some lovely cider and some supper and things like that. So it's, uh, thanks very much to Terry for the time being. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.